Hello and welcome to Pop Up Submissions Live. Our theme this week, speculative fiction. Well, what is speculative fiction? Well, cynics and people who aren't funny might claim it's just a broad category to lump a wide range of fiction into without a meaningful definition. More realistically, it's a category with a broad coverage of genres that can be described as a story exploring what if the world was this way. This includes a wonderfully massive spectrum of story types, including fantasy, science fiction and horror. And even combinations like science fantasy. Combine the space travel and the high-tech tropes of science fiction and the mystical elements of traditional fantasy and you get a little thing called Star Wars. Simply put, this lets an author describe creative scenarios with the only limit being their own imagination. What if humanity achieved social ideals and began to explore the cosmos? Star Trek. What if 19th century England were invaded by extraterrestrials? War of the Worlds. What if a long-beloved horror staple were mangled beyond recognition and good taste died as a result? Twilight. Here to help me judge today's submissions are ghostwriter, mentor and tutor of the Guardian's advanced writing masterclasses. Welcome back, Ros Morris. And who better to compliment the stunning Ros Morris, but the equally stunning, in his own way, star of ITV News, it's Andy Dickinson. Now, here in the UK, a heat wave is upon us, so for no particular reason other than, why not? Here's a 25% discount on Notopia's six-month full membership, and here's how to get it. Here's the easy way to give a gift upgrade to another member. Click on Upgrade in the main menu. Scroll right down to the bottom of the Account Upgrade Control Panel, where it says Gift Upgrade. Fill in the name of the member you want to give an upgrade to. Click the Proceed button. Then click the Gift Now button. This will open the Secure Payment Panel. Select your payment method, either PayPal or Stripe, if you're using a credit card. Tick the Gift Anonymously box if you want to. If you have a discount coupon, enter it now and hit Apply. Then press Continue to finish your transaction. Yeah, use the coupon code HEATWAVE, and it's got to be all in capitals. If it's not capitals, it won't work. And it's good for the next seven days. And let me just remind you that the latest Craft Chat is live now in the colony. It's all about the basics but essential aspects of preparing your manuscript. So check it out before it ends tonight. And on today's show, we'll be discussing a topic of huge interest to every single writer on planet Earth. How do you build your confidence as a writer? We better get started, don't we? And here we go. Very first submission comes from Tom. Hello, Tom. Hope you're with us live. Speculative literary climate satire, and it's called The Same Boat. And this is Tom's blurb. After discovering a crack in the hull of the bright future, third engineer Rakesh Batra realises injustices on board are causing the ship to sink. Denying the risk, Captain Logan Wilkes encourages more building on the top deck, adding extra weight to the vessel. As the lower decks are flooded and the third-class passengers drown, Batra teams up with others, determined to stop the disaster. 
So it's like Snowpiercer on sea, isn't it, really? Uh, let me tell you about Tom. This is my first piece of long fiction, Tom says. I've had two short stories published online, Drone and Joggers. Otherwise, I've mostly written drama. I've had two short play festivals in New York and many short pieces staged elsewhere in the world. Congratulations. My full-length play, Hedgehog, was performed at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2019. I'm sure that was amazing, but it's nothing really compared to the reading you're going to get right now from Emily. The Same Boat by Tom. Read by Emily. Crack. Rakesh Batra, third engineer on the Bright Future, was not surprised when he discovered a crack in the hull. It appeared one April morning in the bilge, a cramped space in the bowels of the ship inhabited only by stowaways. Batra never liked climbing down here. The place was cold, dark and claustrophobic. Yet he inspected it regularly, picking his way between iron bulkheads and huddled migrants, scanning the floor with his torch. And today, not far from the access ladder, he spotted it a hairline crack running diagonally from port to starboard. Back on deck, Batra inhaled fresh air and gazed out at the bottle-green sea. He knew his discovery had been only a matter of time. The bright future, a unique hybrid of cargo tanker, warship, cruise liner and car ferry, was grossly overburdened. It carried hundreds of vehicles, a giant electricity generator, naval guns and a helicopter, a theme park, an Olympic swimming pool, thousands of passengers and even more cows, pigs and chickens. A fish farm and soya crops for the livestock had mostly replaced the ship's arboretum. Its native wild animals now roamed the decks, scavenging for discarded food scraps. Batra had seen the experts' warnings. Even a slim fault line would soon become a gash, letting in floods of seawater. It was a threat to the vessel and every living creature on it. He had to tell the captain and officers. Knowing them, it wouldn't be easy. Most believed the ship was indestructible and would go on sailing forever. They told of how it had been built from the strongest materials, in just six days according to some, and had survived for centuries, enduring storms, frozen seas, missiles and collisions. Even so, he knew there was no option. Approaching the door of the ship's captain, Logan Wilkes, he delivered three firm knocks. Holy shit, who is this? boomed Wilkes. Third engineer Batra, sir, the ship is in great danger. Better not waste my time. He opened the door and found the captain sitting at his desk, sinking his teeth into a Big Mac. Wilkes was a muscular, red-faced American, with bushy eyebrows that matched his air of bravado. Batra always pictured him as a pirate-turned-admiral. He saluted Wilkes and, in words as precise as he could muster, warned him about the crack. Eyes fixed intently on Batra, the captain finished munching his burger and wiped his mouth on his sleeve. You're a fucking liar, he said. Closing the door behind him, Rakesh Batra shuddered. How could anyone dismiss a mortal threat so casually? Even when he'd shown him a photo of the crack, Wilkes had accused him of faking it. So he decided to tell the officers. He'd have to take each one individually to the bilge to see his discovery in person. He began with his superior, Chief Engineer Su Haran, a supremely practical man in his sixties with jet-black hair and a weary smile. Su claimed to serve the majority, although Batra sensed he was driven by ambition. The engine room had become his personal fiefdom, which he ruled with an iron fist. Any crewman who questioned his orders disappeared mysteriously. It was also rumoured that a Muslim family were being brainwashed in the cargo hold. So it was with trepidation that Batra approached Sue that afternoon and told him of his discovery. 
To his surprise, the chief engineer nodded seriously and asked for details. While Batra explained, Tsu scrutinised the tanks and pipes in the engine room, as if calculating a strategy. OK, show me, he said. The middle deck was a noisy hive where economy-class passengers huddled about their business. There were markets, abattoirs, workshops, ghouls, clowns, prostitutes and preachers. Smoke from scooters and cooking stoves filled the air. Occasionally, crewmen stepped in to break up a fight. But life here was vibrant and hopeful. It reminded Batra of his town in Rajasthan. Down more steps was the bottom deck, home to the third-class passengers. Many had spent their last coins on a ticket. Some picked through stinking piles of rubbish, looking for scraps to sell. Others lived on handouts. Thank you, Emily. Fantastic reading to get us off. And of course, the Genius Room would be nothing if not busy. Um, let me try and give you a quick summary, although it's increasingly hard, actually, uh, because there's so many great comments there. So initially, um, lots and lots of um, appreciation, I think, for the basic concept there. Uh, nice blow, like, like the title, says Matt. Um, there's kind of a question of magical realism. Um, I, I, this is not magical realism at all. This, this is, it's, it's quite different. I don't want to give you a lecture, but it really is different. Um, Hook in the first paragraph, says Chantal. Um, blurb gives me Snowpiercer vibes, says Stacey, so I wasn't the only one to pick those up. Uh, gripping start, says Mal. Boat description is a bit telly, but I really like it, says Matt. And Hannah says, bit obvious that a gash letting in seawater would be a threat to the vessel. Jolly likes it. Um, Stacey, Big Mac pulled me out. Pamela Jo says, yeah, P Big Mac in the middle of the sea. Um, there are just a few anachronisms. I'm not sure a magic realism or problems. That puts me off. I want magic to be magic. I, I, I don't know. I didn't get that vibe at all. I just, I, you know, I just thought this to be a huge grey ocean liner. You've got, you've got McDonald's, eh? you've got absolutely everything. It's, it is kind of Snowpiercer, really. Matt says, I'm loving this as climate change <clears throat> allegory, excuse me. Starts off great, says Hannah, but seawater leaking in sounds urgent, but the great descriptions are showing the progress down, uh, are slowing the progress down. I fear the ship will sink. And Pamela Jo says, good point, but hopefully would not be the sensible word. And you see, sometimes the genius say things that I don't understand, because I'm not a genius. But Roz is, so let's see what she thought. I would call it a fable. It seems oh, yeah, quite of a typical fable. Yeah. And I think it's set up very well in the, the blurb. It gives you a, a very accurate idea of the kinds of things to expect. I wonder if the blurb tells us a bit too much, goes too far into the story, because I don't know what else you would do after the things that it, it, that have, have happened by the end of the blurb. Yeah. Um, I also think oh, the title's great, by the way. Um, mm. You know, it's a good phrase. It's got loads of resonance. It's it's it does all the right things. We're all I in it. They're all in it. Mm. Um, I do think it's rushed. Um, I think um, we we go from him going into the build, seeing this thing, then going up to the captain, and the description of the captain is good. I really saw what he like. I could feel mm. what it's like to be in his presence. That was a good description, <laughs> and. Um, uh, but then I started to think that he says, oh, well, I'll just have to go and tell the people one by one. And there's no sort of stopping to question. There's no, what can I do? I care about this. No one else cares about this. Those are kind of stages that get us engaged more with the character and yeah. the problems they'll have. And I think it's missing that. I think it needs to slow down quite a lot. It's rushing yeah. through quite a lot of material quite quickly. 
It is, isn't it? I, just, I wonder where he's going with it, actually. And I, I didn't particularly identify or invest with our protagonist, which is possibly going to be a problem mm. um, a bit later on, Batra. Um, but I don't know, maybe you did, Andy? Uh, no, unfortunately I can't say. Just, I mean, you know, it, this is very metaphor-heavy for me. To, mm. to, I mean, and I think you're bang on with the, with the Snowpiercer comparison. And in the same way, I was bored of Snowpiercer after a few episodes, I'm... I'm not overly infused with this, unfortunately. Just, I mean, I, I think there's there's a, a cleverness to it that you know we're all in the sinking ship together. Of course, politically, I hundred percent agree with you. But as I said before on this program, I I do struggle with with texts that are so politically heavy, so early doors. And to me, you're you know you've got a really interesting blurb. Well, again, say it's very very metaphor heavy. Mm. You're, you're kind of doing the blurb in the first paragraph, so so you know. So we already know about the crack, and and then it's it's bang we're on this sinking ship, and you know, and and the captain's an ass, and then let's go through these characters. I mean, there, there's some great imagination at play. I love the idea of the animals roaming the place. You know, I mm. love the idea of why like, you've got you've got Blade Runner on like deck two or whatever. But 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 for me, it was just the metaphors were coming a little bit too strong and heavy. Um, right yeah but fables are kind of strong and heavy they aren't they they're not they don't have detailed sort of character you know but then i would say that with fables the the charm the things that stop you having the response that andy's having and i do agree about that is the the details the way the author mm. brings it alive and that's another reason mm. why i think it needs to slow down i'm going the wrong way aren't i there's that that's yeah, right. there's the way, that's the way I can go. <laughs> um yes that's why i think he needs to slow down for instance yeah. when he goes down to the village and sees the migrants who are sort of there i thought i wanted to stop and look at those what are they yeah. doing what do they yeah. say to someone who yeah. comes down who's from you know the the, the people who steer this thing they'd have yeah. something to say at least absolutely so there's a lot more that could come out and then that would stop it seeming so pat yeah yeah you're right and i think listing going on wasn't there you know you can see this and 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 you know if you if you if we were with you seeing one of these things then we could get much more invested rather than a kind of itinerary and what what you can find where 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 Chantal finds it comedic. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, actually. Um, agree with Rod says, mild good points. And Stacey kind of picks those up and, and goes a bit further, actually. She says, Sta- question for the author. That's you, Tom. Hopefully you're with us. Are you? Um, question for the author to consider. We see a bunch of stowaways. How does Batra feel about them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seeing him quite save the cat. Oh, please. Anyone else who says save the cat today is going to get strangled. Uh, with these stowaways might help readers invest early. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So just one uh, final point about this sort of thing. It's a fable, says Ros. I think it's a bit of a polemic as well. Um, Andy thinks it's a bit bit top heavy on, on the politics. Um, what 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 about the market? I was kind of struggling for this. I've I've given it a three, um, three stars to the market. Do you think there's a market for this kind of fiction? It depends how well it's done. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, um, I, mean, moment, I, I suspect there is a probable market. Yeah. It. But maybe if you're going to go down that that fable charm route, it might be better to make it young adult or something like that. I was wondering and about really, YA. Yeah. Yeah, and really bump up that that charm value to it, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, you I mean you could liken it to, to Noah's Ark, couldn't you? you yeah, know, very much so. Could, I would have thought I would have thought for kids you could get you could get a lot of value out of that. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my point of view, as um, an alleged adult, um, at least I'm not not exactly a YA reader. I would I would read it not for you know not for the mass because I know I know I know the earth is burning. We haven't said all we've got to do is open the window and it's forty degrees outside. I know that, but I I'm very interested in solutions. I'm really interested to know where this where this was is taking us and what it says about us and you know what we need to do basically to save the planet. I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I kind of think if you're going to do this, and I understand why you might not want to do it, but we need to see some hope, don't we? We need to see yeah. Some, yeah. some because because again we agree with you. Yeah, the the earth is in a terrible terrible state, and we're all scared. But, yeah. but we need some kind of hope, don't we? We need a reason. To get we up absolutely do. We absolutely. I think that's so true, actually. And RG. Yeah, that's a great point. And also, I wonder where it's going. Uh, like I said, with the blurb looks as if it's telling the whole story. So yes. What else is going to happen? Yes, yes. And Stacey says, The Hunger Games was a polemic and had a huge market. Absolutely. Can we say save the whales as RG and Stacey wants to save the koalas? Gosh, I thought we were being serious for a moment, but clearly we're not. Uh, thank you very much, guys. I uh, Hopefully Tom is uh, is with us, and uh, hopefully Tom is pleased with the feedback. Let's see what the numbers are, look, like, look like for you, Tom. You've got a very creditable 63, which is a very good way to start the show. Let's see what's next. This is from Sebastian. Hello, Sebastian. Speculative fiction, that's the name of the game today, is called The Light. Now I'm going to read you Sebastian's blurb. Connor is invited to the headquarters of the world's largest technology company to help them with a secret project. It's revealed they've been building a vastly powerful new superintelligence, a quantum neural net that ingests the internet ten times a second. But there's a problem. It's been mysteriously silent for over a year, despite all attempts at communication. Deep thought, deep silence. Can Connor make contact? Can he work out whether the world's most powerful AI can be trusted before it's too late? Right, so this is about Connor. Um, Connor lives in Raglan, a small coastal town in New Zealand. I always take anything from New Zealand really seriously. We had Lee Marianne last week, fabulous writer. Um, yeah, I think yeah, the, the, the small band of highly dedicated writers down there, I think. Working part-time as a software developer, fathering two girls, and playing, playing in virtual reality. I've been closely watching AI developments for decades... My computer science honours thesis was an AI, and find the philosophical implications, oh, how timely that is, isn't it, uh, of AI particularly interesting, even pressing. I took a novel writing course for the New Zealand Writers' College in 2017, which saw me through the first third of the book. Well, we're going to see you through the first 700 words for this more than amazing reading from Mel. The Light, written by Sebastian, read by Mel. You should have worked harder. The message appeared on a Monday morning, the bold gray text and pale yellow background filling electronic billboards in city after city as dawn rounded the globe. If commuters didn't see it out their window, they saw it splashed across ad banners in their devices. After a day, it was gone. Six weeks later, the second message appeared. You shouldn't have bothered. 
The unprecedented scale of the ad campaign became a global news story, but anonymous campaigns weren't a new thing. Most people still expected it to turn into the usual messaging from some big bank or insurance company. In another six weeks, you should have lived in the moment. And six weeks later, you should have planned for tomorrow. When hackers tried to trace the yellow ads from the ad services back to the source, they failed. All online communication and payment had been routed through secure servers. In another six weeks, you should stay home. Public polls showed increasing dislike for the campaign. The messages voted meaningless, manipulative, and irresponsible. Nevertheless, the global economy took a 1.2% hit following the you should stay home message due to people going out less. Six weeks later, you should go out. The global economy saw a 2.5% bump. The yellow-gray plague was now officially the most expensive ad campaign in history. Debates raged on the legality of the anonymous campaigns, whether the public should have a right to veto such campaigns, whether corporations should be allowed such influence while staying anonymous. Six weeks later, no one knows who you are. Another six weeks came and went with no new message, and then six months, and then a year. The most talked about advertising campaign in history, which never actually marketed anything, died a quiet death without ever actually selling anything. Almost $200 billion had been spent. 130 companies and institutions in the world had the cash to do it. None of them claimed responsibility. Five years later, they still hadn't. Chapter one. That SUV does not belong in this town. Connor arrived at the thought gradually as he came to a stop behind the bull bars. Camper vans and station wagons and tattered old RVs choked up the main road. Families were heading out for the long weekend, all of them thinking they'd left it late enough to miss the rush hour, a collective dismay heavy in the air. But the SUV seemed immune and unconcerned. It was a foreign entity, a piece of obsidian reflecting the lanes of traffic in its mirror tint windows. He thumped the broken aircon controls, then rolled his window down and hung an elbow out to catch a breeze. The traffic was annoying. He used to blame everyone else for traffic. Now he was old enough to hate himself. Hey, it was only an extra hour. It was only the next three years. Three years of 80-hour weeks. Then Gary would retire. Then Connor might just get company director on his CV. Hamish and Sarah would be out of school and into jobs. And he was out of here. Three years. The car inched forwards through another cycle of the lights. The body of the SUV didn't wobble when the wheels rode over the potholes, which meant it had predictive suspension. Other drivers were throwing looks at it now, except for those alongside who were making hard work of not looking at it. He wondered if the big shots in the SUV were nervous being jammed in so close to all this riffraff. Maybe they were lost. There was no such thing as being lost anymore. He directed his gaze downward to the contacts icon in his app bar. His glasses responded sluggishly. They were an old model with worn out chips and a reluctance to cooperate that bordered on the belligerent. His contacts list eventually appeared. He scrolled to Sarah. She'd be a good distraction. After three rings, the glasses projected a virtual window out over the car bonnet. His pixelated sister sat within it, cross-legged on the floor of her bedroom, rolling a cigarette in the lap of her pajamas. She didn't look up. Thank you, Mel. Great reading. 
Um, I'm going to say something uh, wild and insane. It's probably the heat getting to me, actually. This this is the first sign of heat strike, guys. So I actually preferred the prologue to the first chapter. And you won't hear me say that very often. Oh, no, you won't. Let's see what Andy thought. Yeah, I'm always threatened when I 100% agree with you, but that's two now in two submissions. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought the prologue was great. What mm. a pretty, clever idea. Um, I really, really love that. And and like Roz said in the submission before, I was wondered really if you were rushing it because I thought you had such a top idea, really interesting, you know, beat yourself up. Um, mental ad campaign mm. that costs billions that's having an effect on global markets yeah. and things like that. Um, I, what's that? There, there's that Oscar winner, the Billboard uh, film, wasn't there? I guess it's slightly reminiscent of that. But also this reminded me of... Um, I, I, I've never... Speculative fiction, I must admit, is sort of new on me. But then mm. I, this is starting to remind me of old Ben Elton. I used to read quite a lot. Oh, yes. Whatever Star happened to? Back in the day. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, this new Eden. And, and, and I guess he was doing very much this kind of thing. My, my issue would be then, where's the jokes? Because yeah, you know, when, the, when, when your chapter yeah. one's died and we're with your central protagonist, we did unfortunately lose all that um, dynamism uh, that that you had going going through the, the prologue, and then mm. I, I did lose a bit a bit more interest. But but I, but I just think for the for the prologue alone, I just think round of applause. I thought I thought that was such mm. a great idea. I think it deserved a little bit more, to be honest. Yeah, but did you find? I mean, I, I found this. Um, I actually was really not interested in Connor's SUV. Um, I was, yeah. you know, I mean, he's, you know, he set the scene up. Now he's talking about Connor. He's, you know, this is the problem with prologues, really. You know, he set it up, and I, I don't want to know about Connor. I want, I want, uh, not his yeah. bloody SUV. I'm yeah. much more interested in. If you mix the two, and you had Connor driving around in an SUV, seeing the, you know, seeing the billboards, and it yeah. having an effect on him, yeah, then maybe we'd be invested in the character and the world you're creating at the same time by splitting yeah. them up. You, you obviously, you know, you, it's, it's that risk, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Ross. Completely agree. Yes, I loved the prologue and it set up so many intriguing things that we hope to learn about in the special world. This is a special world kind of novel as well as speculative fiction. You've, you've got ideas of people being able to do things anonymously, not being able to be traced. Um, and it, it is it's such an exciting idea. And then we got to the, the SUV and, and I thought that it slowed right down. There was, there was nothing yeah. that was nearly as imaginative no, as what no. we just read. And I didn't, I didn't care about the SUV. I, no. I wanted to get on with something that was obviously linked with the amazing thing we just read about. Yeah. And I thought what it was going to do was go to a scene like the one described in the blurb, which said Connor gets called by these people. And I thought that the most natural thing would be someone is saying, you remember that. No one knew who yeah. this was. Yeah. Well, we've got to find it. Yeah. Mm. That's right. It's a big idea. Don't just leave it hanging in mid air there. Mm, yeah. Goodness gracious me. Um, and of course, the genius have not been slow. Um, Stacey says, My stomach is still tight. 
from that prologue. How cool is that? I, 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 you, when you get a physical reaction from your reader, Sebastian, you're doing all right. Um, I had a love the prologue. Didn't find chapter one hooky enough. Now, I agree. The contrast between the gripping prologue and the rather slow-moving first scene of the protagonist was a bit disappointing. Yes, and that's from one writer. Um, and Matt says, as someone who routinely curses... Are the SUVs on the on the road? I should have been more into Chapter One, but you're not. Um, and Stacey says, "Oh, if we see Connor trying to not change his behaviour based on the campaigns, yeah, or convincing himself he's doing things for other reasons unrelated to the campaigns." And RG says, "Chapter One and current prologue could be combined. This is the way the Ross is going into a truly gripping story. Beginning a story beginning. Loads of reader skip readers skip prologues. They do. Not a few agents as well." Um, all right, well, yeah, definitely a submission of two halves there, Sebastian, but I think we like the big idea. Let's see the numbers. And you got a 64, which shoots you just about into the lead at the moment. Wow! Um, now then, should we have our third submission today? Or shall we speak to Roz? What do you say? All right, Roz, then. Here we go. <laughs> Roz, it's good to see you back. We're going to talk about one of the many books that you've um, you've authored, um, which is this one. And I have to say, I very much like the sound of this. Uh, not quite lost, not quite lost. Travels without a sense of direction, and it's a diary. Now, the thing that I like—I mean, I don't know if anyone is familiar with this word because it's kind of fallen out of fashion many years ago, like the beginning of the 20th century. But uh, there is this word called flaneur that um, is obviously French. And I'm, I just looked up. I know what it means. But look, I, it's very difficult to define, actually. So this is straight out of your Wikipedia. A person of leisure, an idler, urban explorer, the connoisseur of the street. Flannery, they say, is the act of strolling with all its accompanying associations. A near synonym of the noun is boulevardier. Um, oh. An acute observer of industrialised contemporary life. Why does it have to be industrialised? Wikipedia says so. Is that is that the sort of the quarter that uh, you're in with this? Sort of, not necessarily industrialised. Um, no. It, it's um, it it began life as a travel diary, just a normal travel diary. I have notebooks for all occasions, and there's one that lives in my suitcase. And oh, wow. um, I, we we arrived at a at a self catering little. Um, castle folly thing we were staying in one winter and i got the diary out and thought and said to my husband well i wonder what adventures we'll be writing in this this time and he said you should publish that as a book and i said oh yeah yeah they'll go in novels at some point the stories in there and he said no publish it as a book and i said no one will want to read that because no one will you know, know who i am or anything um but then i I started to like the idea. So then I talked to various friends. You know, the friend I've got is a bookseller who will tell me the truth. Oh, thank you, Stacey. Mm. And and he said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. And so did the editor of a magazine I was working on and all sorts of people. They all said, do it. So I thought, all right, well, I'll see if I can. And I was thinking of those kind of Bill Bryson books that are just yeah. really charming. They yes. just love exploring little places not big places mm. this isn't about climbing mountains it's about going somewhere and you know driving the depths of winter and the car window gets stuck down and you have an yeah. argument about who who rolled the window down when they shouldn't have and and then what are you going to do because you can't leave the car anywhere it's 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 your holiday and now you've got this car that needs to be looked after like an ailing patient and and then other things like um 
the house I grew up in, I discovered it had been knocked down. And I, I discovered mm. this when someone got back in contact with me on Facebook I was at school with. She said, mm. I went past your old house and it's been knocked down. And mm. I went straight on to um, Google Street View and I found the pictures of it just before. And the garden was all scalped. And it, oh, was, it was just shocking. So I thought, yeah. I must write an obituary for this house and yeah. what it meant. And yeah. it, so it's a collection of all sorts of pieces like that. And yeah. there's another piece where my mother had told me about a house she lived in after she, <laughs> she she ran away from my father and then she went to live with her childhood sweetheart and they were in their 60s so this this was sort of it, it wasn't quite a disaster, nice, think. Quite nice. but it was still yeah. quite nice and, and very yeah. odd for, to have that yeah. kind of drama in your family and apparently she they lived together in this manor house in bath and we were on holiday in Bath and I said let's find the manor house so we, we went looking and we couldn't find it and I was going into all sorts of places saying have you heard of this house where is it and I went into a school and they looked at me saying what are you doing in here and I said um, I'm looking for the house my mother ran away to with her childhood sweetheart and they went oh my goodness we must help you find it yeah. and it was just the, the unexpected things that bring out people's humanity yeah yeah absolutely it's, it sounds like a comfort read actually i, I find yes, lockdown really, yeah. has has moved me in that direction you know i'm just i'm really i really appreciate comfort reads now i mean i like you know i, I like spec fiction as well but i just uh, sometimes you just feel like you know it's like um the guy who runs the publishing company that discovered jk rowling once said to me because I, I he must have answered this question a thousand times actually i said what is it what is it do you think what, you know, why did it, it click to the extent it did do? he said well you know it's kind of like a warm bath it's very very pleasant it's just a nice you know a nice reading experience nothing wrong with that at all you said something a moment ago that i i want to pick up on actually because you said you've got this idea we weren't quite, quite sure if it was going to work or not. But then you spoke to other people, and, and magazine editor and this, that and the other, and they kind of, you know, encouraged you and built your enthusiasm, maybe built your confidence as well. I want to talk about that for a moment, because it strikes me... Let's, let's bring Andy on this as well. It strikes me that writer's confidence is the cornerstone to, to all this. So if, if, you, if you're not confident as a writer, and there's so many things that knock writer's confidence especially when you're aspiring writer you're trying to get published then you're never going to discover your own voice or really take off take wings am i right or i'm just flying a kite i think you're absolutely right i think you have to discover it's okay to like what you like mm. and to learn what your individuality is and what you um, can contribute that's really you and it, it takes quite a long time um, you get lots of people who will steer you one way and another and they are very helpful but you also have to kind of learn to listen to yourself and I probably had, a, had quite an interesting start um, on, on, on my own writing confidence because I was ghostwriting so I was writing as other people all I had to do was oh, figure out who they were <laughs> and, and play yeah. them and, yeah. and also yeah. figure out what was what was needed for for the market but when i came to write my own work i could think well that was them so who am i and i discovered that as as i as i edited my own first novel and i thought this is where i want to take it how can i make other people come with me Um, so you can 
you, you often have quite a few, I think, false starts where you might try to be like somebody you admire. I mean, I did Graham Greene for a few months, or actually a few years. I, I read Graham Greene and I was so overwhelmed oh. by the brilliance of Graham Greene that I found yeah. myself doing Graham Greene. Um, yeah. And that's good. That's the stage I had to go through. And then I had yeah. to think, I'm not Graham Greene, I'm someone else. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of noticing what he did that um, that was good for me. They were, yeah. There were things that I, that I just learned how to do. And yeah. I gradually came out of that. It's like, I don't know if any of you ever did this at school, when you're trying to figure out what your handwriting will be. Uh, I was forever changing my own handwriting. I would spot someone else's handwriting and think, I would love to look oh, like really? that on the page. Really? And okay, I can see none of you did this, but I did. <laughs> but I would try and imitate. <laughs> I'm still trying to learn how to write, Ashley. <laughs> Once I do that, I'll have a go at what you say. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, well I, I now can't. I, my, my, my fingers are slipping on this pen all over the place. But I would try other ways of forming letters and making making the words sort of look nice together. And yeah. after a while, some of it would stick because it was natural to me. And it was a new nice thing that I liked to be yeah. able to do. And other things I simply couldn't keep up because they weren't natural to me. And I think finding a writing style is mm. like that. And sure it's, that's is, not isn't it? Yeah, let's, let's just, just let's just go off on a tangent for a moment. We'll we'll, we'll come back right? to this. Obviously, this is set. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go on a tangent and, and ask, ask ask this of you, Andy, because professionally you do something that would scare the pants off most other people, which is um, appear on live television and do uh, do television reports, news reports, and obviously for you that's kind of routine. That's what you do, but most people would find that incredibly intimidating. I mean, how do you do it? Um, I cheat, obviously. Oh. Um. I I mean, I must admit, I, I, I completely hear what, what Roz is saying about listening to other voices. When I started doing it, say if I was doing a history story or say if I was doing a court story, I would imagine, and this wasn't particularly a conscious thing, I just found myself doing it, mm. and, and everything I do is about speed. So you literally just, you don't have time for insecurities. You don't have time to second-guess yourself. You just have to go ahead and do it. But I would imagine say my, my colleague Derek's voice in my head or my colleague Malcolm's voice in my head and how they do it and I just bash out the script that way um, nowadays obviously I've been doing it so long that, that you know I don't have to rely on those voices but but you still you still I mean oddly enough this week um, I, I did a, a story where I was in a mocap suit being transformed into a monster on a Thursday wow. and then on the Friday I was outside the high court doing a story about a young boy in hospital who's on life support and the doctors want to turn off the life support. So, I mean, talk about light and shade. Yeah. And, and you do, in a sense, have to become one character for one story that you very much hope isn't Alan Partridge, but it could be. And, <laughs> and you know, and the next day, you know, you, you have to be the kind of the, the, the ITN, you know, this, this is serious, yeah. uh, heartfelt tragedy. And, yeah. and, and you have to try to emote that in a sense without doing it too much because you do have to be somewhat subjective but mm. thankfully you know you are able to say this is the story of a heart you know this is a heartbreaking story of chat you know you, you can in, in our job at sunny regional television you can be a little bit more commentary than than i was taught necessarily in newspapers mm. um you just have to be really really careful how you use it yeah, yeah, excellent. Any final advice for, for people on that upward learning curve who are, I don't know, maybe, you know, looking at all kinds of things on the internet now? 
Um, how you do this, how you mustn't do that. Break this rule and you will never get published. I mean, there's so much advice around like that. Some of it, my, a lot of it, quite conflicting. And my concern about over, uh, all that, I guess, really, is that it, it just makes you feel you know, kind of trapped in a little box. I've got to do this, must do that. Did I remember to do that? And uh, at the end of the day, it's not about ticking boxes or conforming to things. Because writers are kind of non-conformists, aren't they? They are. I mean, we, we invent things. Um, and and people like individual writers. They they like so and so's voice. They're kind of characters, and that that comes yeah. from them building it themselves. Yeah. And, and from other starting points and inspirations mm. and people whose books they liked. But it does come out as as their own thing with with its yes. own DNA. So yeah. take your time. Um, yeah. Learn to be yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That's very good advice. And you know what? I mean, when we do see a writer um, with a strong voice, I mean, we love it. We just love it, guys. So, you know, come out of your shell. Don't be too intimidated. You know, develop your own personal voice. And that's, in my view, that's the single most important aspect to, to uh, commercial success. Let's see what submission number three is all about. And this is my word. This is interesting. It's from a, a, two writers, a team. Don't often get that, very rarely. This is from Richard and Susanna Osinga. And of course, it's spec fic. And it's got, I think, I'm blown away by this title. Absolutely. I love this title. I absolutely love this title. The Society of Temporal Return. I like that so much. Kind of, I don't know, reminds me a bit of Jonathan Strange, you know, Mr. Norrell stuff. Anyway, let's see what it's about. This is the blurb. When Reggie tells his friends that he's built a time machine over the summer, they all have plans and ideas for trips. As they start using it, they find out it isn't easy to alter your past. It also becomes clear that Reggie hasn't told them the whole truth. What is his relationship with the Russian student Vasily? Why does he seem unable to explain how the machine works? When the friends discover the real story of the time machine's invention, they are faced with the task to change the future. All right, well, let's hear about this dynamic writing duo, shall we? Uh, Susanna Singer is 21 years old. She studies industrial design in Delft. She likes to think about ways to innovate the reading experience and motivate young people to read more. Very good. Richard Osinger is 50 years old. <laughs> Ages first. He is a well-known author in the Netherlands with six novels to his name. His last book was on the long list of the Birkenbahn Literature Prize. Uh, excuse my appalling accent, but I think I think I got that just more or less. Um, but what will not be appalling, in fact, the very opposite of appalling, fabulous, <laughs> is this reading from Barbara. The Society of Temporal Return by Richard and Susanna Ozinga, read by Barbara. 1935, 31st August, Florence. It was good to be back. Florence parked at Duesenberg in front of Dittenhall. Wilfrid opened the door and got out, but she remained seated behind the wheel and looked at their home. It welcomed them with solemnity and the faint smell of cut grass. Over the past summer, Florence had returned to Cambridge many times in strange, feverish dreams. The weather had been uncommonly hot this year, with sweaty nights in which she struggled to find rest. Her maids had opened windows, laid cold towels on her forehead and feet, 
but to no avail. In some dreams, she would wander the Wren Library, where she would sit on a hard wooden chair in the moonlight and read. Even though nothing in particular happened at all in the dream, she'd feel anxious, like she was being watched, like there was danger close by. In other dreams, she was lying on the grass of Midsummer Common, barefoot, listening to the soft timbre of Reggie reading from a book about the restless subatomic particles doing the jitterbug. It was pleasant, and she felt safe, until Reggie started speeding up, faster and faster, until he was reading at such a neck-breaking speed that his words melted into each other, and they sounded like one big algamated scream. She always woke up with a lump in her throat. Do you want us to unpack your belongings, miss? That would be perfect, thank you. She smiled and got out of the car. Stephen hurried inside, her last suitcase cradled in his arms. Books, much older than the frail boy, filled it to the brim, but she didn't doubt he would be careful. She turned to her younger brother, who was still standing next to the car, holding the door. His fiery red hair was ruffled from the drive, his cheeks flushed from the heat. Why don't we walk to the Eagle? she said. It's so nice out today. If we leave now, we'll be there just in time for the others. Let's do it, Wilfred said, as he extended his arm, and Florence took it. There was no need to hurry. Their friends were always late. Florence talked animately as they walked through the bright meadow along the river. I think September may just be my favourite month. I love the blue dots of the cornflowers in the yellow sea of the long grass stalks. The favourite flower of Kaiser Wilhelm I. There's a nice story about that. A rowing boat on the cam passed them at full speed. Florence waved at the red-faced rowers. They're rowing already? Wilfred asked, turning his head in the direction of the river. Yes, it's the new team. Their movement's in perfect harmony, the blades dipping just above the water. Now they drop the oars in the water and unleash the power of their legs. You hear the coxswain crying, don't bury the blade. I don't recognise him. He's balding and looks a bit too old to be a student. A tiny fellow. The rowers themselves are even leaner, stronger and more broad-shouldered than last year. They'll win again, I'm sure of it. Wilfred had a dazed smile on his face. Florence loved it when she could make him smile like that. What does the sky look like? The brightest blue, almost violet. The colour of father's favourite car. It contrasts beautifully with the ivied brick of the houses of Chesterton. They left the camp crossed Midsummer Common and Christ Pieces and arrived in town. The streets were bustling with honking cars and neighing horses. Several new shops had opened over the summer. She saw one selling silk scarves and another specialising in felt hats and the finest new coats for autumn ensembles. A boy was shouting the latest news. Large fire in the wharfside warehouse in London. Firefighters can't put it out. She saw the black eagle on the red signboard as soon as they turned into Bennett Street. The stern Kettenstone facade of the eagle didn't look particularly welcoming, but Florence knew what was behind the dark oak door. Thank you, Barbara. Great reading there. And I think we should hear straight from Roz, actually. First reactions, please, Roz. I think the blurb sounds intriguing, and the... Um the excerpt just seems quite aimless, which is a pity. Mm. Um, and I wasn't very clear, because the blurb sets up expectations of time travel, I wasn't sure if these were time travellers who had arrived in this era, 
which is actually set in that era. So I was conf confused about that. And there's, there's no reason to confuse me about that because there isn't a narrative intrigue to set up. Um, I was also concerned about the dream, although they beautifully described, and this is the really seductive thing about putting a dream in, you can describe them beautifully, they're strange, they've got all the, the you think, yes, I've had dreams like that, what a lovely idea, that someone reading, getting faster and faster, but it's not real. And yeah. I think when we start a book, we are thinking, I really want to get hold of something, see if I gel with the characters. And yeah. for that, you want reality more often. And a tiny, yeah. tiny um, point, um, she describes the, the street scene of the honking cars and the neighing horses. Um, you, they wouldn't be neighing. I am a horse nerd, by the way. Um, uh, I can you're see not the only one. We, we, we have a very <laughs> famous horse nerd in the genius room, of course, because the genius room always has you know, a multiplicity of everything. But we've, um, yeah, we've got someone who specializes, and I think Apple loses, actually. So oh, what, right. what, well, this what is, do you specialise in? It's a, it's, a, it's a mistake that movie makers always make. If they've got horses oh. in scenes, the Foley artist puts neighing on, and it's, yeah. it, the horses do not neigh that much. So you, you would hear other sounds, like clopping hooves or something. I can hmm. see the writer just wanted a sound that said, yeah. there are horses here, rather than saying there are horses here, as well as cars. Uh, but that's a, a, a very small detail. Mainly, I didn't get into it. I was confused. There wasn't really enough going on that lived yeah. up to the great promise in the blurb. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I got hung up. I don't know if you did. Maybe it's just my hyper-literal mind. No, it's not just me, actually. I, I know I, Matt made a comment like this, too. Uh, what did Matt say? Matt said, oh, where is it? I don't know if I can find it. Um, oh, so many good comments here. Uh, yeah, the, right at the bottom, first column, Matt said, Florence on a line with the date kind of screams the city in Italy and I thought that I thought that's where we were um, maybe the name before the date I, I actually I, I kind of ruined the rest of it for me because I was going oh, that's Florence but well, are we in Florence or what I mean come on you know that just, you know, just, just focus my attention on a place you didn't need it to be actually so maybe I'm just completely only retentive Andy no surely not but probably <laughs> yes um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with everything well said. I, I must, and I, you know, when, when you said you were totally, you loved the title, I was like, oh, mm. do I really love the title? And, and the, the title and the blurb work really well together. Mm. I thought, you know, I, I, they, I was like, yeah, I love that. Mm. I love, and, and I'm a sucker for a time travel story. Yeah, as, as me we too. Know, Back to the Future is mm. by far my favourite film. But mm. I can even remember as a kid, most people probably don't remember, but they tried to turn Happy Days and the Fonz into a time travel thing. Oh, the did they? I didn't know about that. Was it, was, it a total, that. was it like jumping the shark? Yeah, it was totally jumping the shark. Yeah, he had a pet dog that talked, of course he did. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and then you've got me, you've got Bill and Ted, and, and, and actually on Netflix, there's some fantastic, quirky films that use time travel and, and quantum physics and all that yeah. kind of thing. So, you know, so, so, so for me, you, you, you sold a concept that I really like in the blurb. I was confused, like Roz was, by, the, by, you know, by this idea. So are we actually with these time travellers now in the past? Because by the end of it, they seem so comfortable in that place. That, that, that's what I imagined at first. But they seem so comfortable in that place that by the end, I was like, oh, no, are they? And actually, is this time travel going to be set in this, in this period? So I, I'm guessing to have that much confusion in your opening is not a good thing. And no. again, like Roz, I agree with the idea of you know, sticking a dream in 
so high up. I'm, mm. I'm not quite sure that's ever that good an idea. Um, when, when she said, I think September might be my favourite month, I just think that is a bit, um, you know, that's, that, that just doesn't work for me so high up in the text. Yeah. It's a lovely thing for someone to say, but I've yeah. got to know their character quite well to really kind of sympathise yeah. them when they're, they're being so, September's my favourite month, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah, sweet and sour is my favourite Chinese, but whatever. Um, but having said that, there were the, the, the relationship that was being built between the two, there were points when that really was beginning to click with me. When she said something like, oh, you know, she made him laugh or something and she loved it when he did that in such a way. I was like, yes. I felt like, oh, that, that's, that's really sweet. You know, I'm, I'm really liking that. I think, this, I think this is the best submission we've had so far today. I think the person can definitely write and they've got a great concept. But, but I, I share all Roz's concerns about, about the opening that we, yeah. we read. Yeah, and RG says the stiff dialogue and primness of the couple are a bit distancing for me. It's like a hundred other period dramas. The promise of the title isn't coming through in the story opening. I agree with that. And Vagabond says, there's something here, though, that is pulling me in a bit. I think it's that old, that old time travel thing. We all love it. But, um, you know, f- um, further on, I would want to know how how that's going to work out, actually, because, you know, time travel is such a such a big old trope isn't it i mean you've got to add something new to it in order to to get commercial interest lax says the blurb really got me stranger things uh across to back to the future want but like many others here opening with uh context less dreams are uh, what we got into i'm afraid this needs work and pamela joe horse expert <laughs> says it's true wild horses make almost no noise at all but then she she picks on me and i don't i don't pretend to know anything about horses at all but i'm getting picked on she says spanish mustangs appaloosa is just a color gene okay fine everyone knows that i suppose um and hannah says and dog specialists as well of course we have a dog specialist here too yeah cool all right so where are we looking at number wise then i wonder 64 looks like at the moment let's see how the uh, numbers are looking at just over halfway through scorecard yeah that's what i thought we've got two tying for for show winner actually yeah we've got richard and susanna and we've got sebastian as well but we also have submission number four which is from aaron aaron five it's Specfic again, the amulet and the oath, and this is Aaron's blurb. On the fantasy world of Ethratu, Aaron's storm shadow's peaceful existence in the quiet town of Elderwood comes to an abrupt end after a tragic accident means he has to leave everything he's ever known behind. A life-changing revelation entrusted to his mentor, Grelan, the artisan weaponsmith, remains concealed. Right. However, it's only when Eren befriends a young and well-travelled pirate captain, Caris Quinn, that the truth and Eren's vital part in Erthratu's survival is revealed to him. All right, let's find out about Eren. Uh, I'm a 56-year-old former police officer with absolutely no bona fide writing credentials, aside from a decent imagination and a love of creative writing. You've just described the top 100 best-selling authors of all time. That's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm an average reader with a love of horror and fantasy, but I have an admittedly parochial leaning towards Scottish authors telling Scottish stories. You're not alone in that. I'm a father of four and dad to five. Right, so (laughs) this is an interesting sentence. (laughs) 
I'm a father of four and dad to five, in parenthesis. My second wife's son adopted me, close brackets, and I love gaming on my laptop. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, I'm just going to read the second half of that sentence again. My second wife's son adopted me and I love gaming on my laptop. Well, in a, in a, in a query letter, you should definitely include, not the uh, gaming stuff, but you should de definitely include um, your second son adopting you because that is such a good talking point, isn't it? Uh, it kind of stops me dead, that does. Um, I've been a musician, well, a drummer. <laughs> Appreciate the difference. You've got a good sense of humour. Then live bands, including a tea in the park appearance. So... Adventure's been quite a big part of my life so far. Uh, my fleeting idea for a story in April last year grew arms, legs and wings before presenting itself to me as the Amulet and the Oath in July. Its sequel is well underway, and what will be well underway too in just two ticks, two shakes of a lamb's tail, will be this fabulous reading from Emily. The Amulet and the Oath by Aaron, read by Emily. Prologue. It was late on Sorenfest when I fled my home village. Despite Red Moon's presence dwarfing everything else in the sky, her blood-stained face offered little in the way of illumination, but she had helped, at least, to mask my escape. Spiriting myself away from Elderwood that night was the start of a long, uncomfortable journey to the coast and the small port of Coveshade far to the south. I may have had a very different tale to tell if my grandfather had just revealed to me why he had chosen to make a life for us in Elderwood, an inoffensive backwater tucked away in Albafay's remote northern countryside. But fate is a tangled web of choices that only reveal our wisdom or foolishness in hindsight. But of this I am certain, as sure as Ethra's embrace will close his eyes forever one day, I would never have left him to face the consequences of my actions that day if I had known any of it. But... What use was regret? It couldn't change what happened. I'd made my decision, and it cost me dearly. And all those circums ago, Grelin, the forge master, had done so too. With no previous desire or necessity to roam or wander, I was content learning from the master craftsman that my grandfather was, and labouring at his forge all day. After all, what more did a young man need but a place to sleep and food in his belly? I had never even considered venturing further than the local farms just out with the town boundary. Even then it was on forge business or to collect our supplies. The world beyond really held no interest for me. But needs must. Inside the stuffy compartment of the Red Moon carriage, I would endure the furnace of high fire's unrelenting glare for three full days and the chill of almost three full nights before the wondrous southern coast of Albafay revealed itself to me. Chapter 1 from fire and bone. Much to my irritation and intense unease, the clattering carriage made several rest stops. At the coach houses, each one a day's ride apart, my agitation would overwhelm me. I'd shift impatiently in my seat, glancing anxiously back along the road, looking for the wardsmen's lanterns behind us. I don't remember how often I leaned out of the tiny window to tersely inquire how long each stop was going to take. These clearly bothersome queries, were largely ignored by my gruff driver. He showed no particular urgency while he went about the relatively straightforward process of the relief handover. The exhausted horses were unhitched and rested. Their fit and eager replacements took up the slack. The reins were handed over to the next shift with a cursory grunt to each other, all of which allowed a brief reanimation of my tired legs and aching bones. 
but I wanted nothing more than to be on my way again. The roads between Elderwood and the port town of Coveshade were pitted and furrowed, so the journey was not a relaxing rumble through Albafay's picturesque landscape. During the painfully slow daylight hours, I would gaze blankly at the viridescent, grass-covered slopes and verdant pine forests skirting the gentle rises at the base of Daggertooth Ridge, a truly majestic backdrop, but all of it unfamiliar to me and, at that point in time, sadly superfluous. Aside from my growing angst, as the ceaseless green landscape rolled by my window, without ever glimpsing a hint of ocean blue, I was being thrown onto every hard surface within the confines of the carriage. After alighting on the quiet harbourage at Coveshade, I spent the first few moments nursing my bruised and battered bones. The coastal night brought an unfamiliar but no less welcome freshness to the atmosphere. I breathed in my first lungful of cold, briny air and felt a pleasant intoxication wash over me. The moon hung in the star-spattered sky, casting her soft silver net over the town. Despite the aches and pains, I felt my nerves settle, and I was able to reflect upon the events that saw me standing at the edge of the ocean, in a strange town, at the uncertain beginning of a new chapter in my young life. Thank you so much, Emily. Second uh, fabulous reading of the day. Um, straight to the genius room. And Stacey, kind of sums up, I think, the way a lot of people feel. The prologue feels like the writer... Uh, I just lost it because of the mood. Um, feels like the writer preparing to write. Well worth the effort to draft, but possibly doesn't belong in the final story. And RG says, confident writing, agree. Dish the prologue. Why do so many writers add these? They should do something essential that you can't do any other way, or drip the info in chapter one. Uh, one says, agree. Nice writing the prologue, but not needed. Get to the story. And Chantal says, you nailed it, Stacey! What did you think, Roz? I think, yes, nice writing. Lovely cadence to the sentences. The names are evocative. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to spend time with his voice. Mm. Uh, but it all seems a bit aimless. Um, it's yeah. just somebody going on a journey and being a bit uncomfortable. And I was waiting to get to something a bit more individual because a beginning really has to do a bit more than just have someone travelling and being a bit uncomfortable unless the discomfort is going to really make us sit up and take notice. Mm. Um, I think he, I, once he said, I reflected on what had brought me here. I was thinking, yeah, I want to know that. And I'd rather yeah. got to that faster. Yeah. Um, but you don't necessarily have to lump backstory in to start with. That might be a bit too much backstory before you've got us interested in the person and yeah. in the themes. And it'd be good if there was something in the beginning that was a microcosm maybe of the, the bigger troubles that yeah. the characters going to have to deal with. Um, yeah. And another thing, um, I I think it's fantasy. It's not speculative fiction. I think fiction. it's fantasy. <laughs> That's what I write down. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's solid, you know, fantasy. It's kind of a bit generic fantasy for me. That doesn't mean to say it doesn't have a, 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 possibly a huge readership. And um, the genius Lex, actually, said something. Yeah, Tolkien-esque excessive detail. <laughs> That's right. It did work for Tolkien, of course, that level of detail, didn't it? That's what we want. We want more of that. Um, at least... Right talking readers do we get it they're going someplace get on with it short arm just not grabbed i'm wondering I'm wondering andy is this your your cup of tea do you do you like sort of solid straight down the road fantasy that's, um, that's, that's the sound an orc makes when it's about to eat somebody yeah so the answer is yes 
Yeah, I was actually must have done that noise. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I love Lord of the Rings. I think I've read it a few times, but but like Warhammer stuff, no. Um, and for me, I mean, yeah, the Amulet and the Oath. It, your blurb, it, your character names are fantastic, but they place this so firmly in genre, and that they genre do. is undoubtedly, unashamedly fantasy. And what, why be ashamed of it? Oh. You know, you don't yeah, yeah. dress it up as anything else. It's fantasy, good and proper. But I yeah. did think that your blurb, the, the plot felt unnecessarily oblique to me. You know, I, I got, there's things moving around, but I'm not quite sure who they are, where they're going. And my main issue with this is that I'm not quite sure who you are. Um, and it seemed to me that the prologue just, just, just rolled into chapter one, in which case I'm not quite sure why that's not chapter one rolling into chapter two. I may yeah. be wrong, yeah. but, but it certainly, you know, there, there, was some, there was some nice writing um, you know, in the first couple of sentences, you gave the Sorenfest, Red Moon, Dwarfing, Bloodstained oh. Face. Yeah. So you know, you're not, you're you're definitely dealing with some cliches. Yeah. Now, for some fantasy audiences, I think that can really work because I think yeah. people that really love fantasy, yeah. they want to be in there with yeah. your Sorenfests and your bloody faces and your, your Red Moons yeah. off the bat. Yeah. But, but surely you need to tell them who your main character is and what he wants. And I wasn't, and again, I'm stupid, forgive me, but I wasn't sure whether your main character was a male or female, what age mm. they were, mm. any of that really. Yeah. Um, so I give us a bit more of, of the character, a bit more showing, a bit more drama maybe, and a little less telling. Yeah, well, that's a great summary actually, yeah, Genius Room. Um, prologues definitely a bone of contention. I got a feeling that Aaron, you you stuck a, a prologue in there because an awful lot of you know solid down the middle uh, fantasy uh, writing uh, genre writer has has prologues because it's kind of a posh thing to do. Isn't it? You got to have a prologue writing fantasy, got a prologue, and there's there's no good reason for that really. Um, other than possibly readers to expect it, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, professional sort of publishing can be a bit sniffy about uh, this kind of thing sometimes. In my, one of my comments is that I just want USB, unique selling proposition. I need something a bit different to lift it from the fantasy genre. And that's my, that's my position as someone you know who has to sell these things to um, not these things manuscripts. Let's let's call let's call them what they are. They're manuscripts, Peter. Not these things. Um, I have to sell them to publishers. So I, I need I need you know something to differentiate it from everything else. That's that that business end of the of, of the business, but. A lot of readers don't think like that. A lot of readers are just very happy to consume absolute solid genre uh, fantasy, which I suspect this is. Let's look at the numbers. 53. 53. Very creditable indeed. And, uh, yeah, you've got yeah, pretty much general agreement there, I think, between the... Um, the panellists and the genii. That's very good. Which means we only have one more uh, submission to go to now, actually. Thank you, Richard. That's very, very nice of you to say so. It's always good to get feedback on our feedback. And let's see where we are for the last submission of the day. It's called Gates to Nowhere. Is that a reference to Microsoft? I don't think so. We'll get sued. Um, Simon Nagel, or Nagel and Nagel. Simon, I'm going to say Simon Nagel. Specfic. This is Simon's blurb. As the lone mortician of Corona, New Mexico, Don Dupree has seen it all when it comes to funerals. At least, 
That was the case until John White's body arrives at his doorstep with no record of birth or death certificates. Strangest of all is the disorientated next of kin, Yuxi, who Don suspects has never even heard of a funeral. After the worst embalming of his career, uh, you got to love a sentence that starts like that. <laughs> I'm going to read it again. After the worst embalming of his career, Don discovers John White is something beyond human, and he's about to host a funeral of intergalactic proportions. I'm still chuckling over that. <laughs> uh, all right, Simon is an American and now lives in the UK with my partner and our rambunctious Chihuahua Terrier mix. Yes, trying to imagine that. Um, that's quite a spec fic, isn't it? Actually, by itself. My background is in screenwriting. I've sold an option scripts, but my love has always been for books. So on one particularly rainy Scottish afternoon, I sat down and finally wrote one. I currently work as a Europe-wide consultant for developing artificial intelligence personalities. That's a new job, isn't it? Maybe we'll all be doing that soon when we don't have our proper jobs. Um, a Europe-wide consultant for developing artificial intelligence personalities. How fascinating. Yeah, you know, writers could do that very well, actually, I think. I also write poetry and short stories that have appeared in indie lit pubs like Maudlin House and Hand. Great. What's even greater is this reading from Ali. Kids to Nowhere by Simon, read by Allison. The village of Corona, New Mexico, lies along US Route 54 and has a population of 165. Don Dupree has buried 65 of Corona's former residents in its cemetery. If you include burials in the Cedarvale and Red Hill cemeteries in the neighbouring towns of Vaughan and Encino, not to mention Tecolity, Coyote or Capitan, Don Dupree has put more people into the ground than he has ever met on the street. Driving Route 54 might leave the impression that the fields of Lincoln County are empty, which is true as long as you don't use a shovel anywhere. Cemeteries in that part of the southwest don't run a big water bill. They bleed into the surrounding land, expanding their dimensions in a long, slow inhale. Short barriers, peppered by shrubs, line their fronts. Some entrances have a bit more embellishment, like old lanterns dangling from pink adobe archways, or overgrown bougainvillea branches flaunting more thorns than flowers. Others utilise a simpler approach, an open gap wide enough to drive a horse trailer through it, oftentimes featuring a flagpole of some sort. A single access road parts the graves down the middle, until they trail off into the desert. Don Dupree calls them the gates to nowhere. Dupree Mortry was a long-standing family business, beginning when Don buried his parents at an early age. Left in the custody of his ageing and distraught grandmother, all manners of internment fell to the youngest Dupree. The rest of his family lived elsewhere. They had fast-paced lives in metropolitan areas and could only make their way to the land of enchantment for a brief weekend of grieving choosing and arranging family plots, embalming procedures and casket models were carried out alongside homework and driving school. Don's driver's license had just arrived in the mail when it came time to repeat the process with his grandmother. He drove the hearse himself. As the orphan Dupree's high school tenure came to a close, he had inherited two homes and a budding skill set. Grandmother Dupree's house was full of jelly bowls and furniture bleached by sun exposure, while Don's childhood bungalow had already been emptied and listed. 
He let the bungalows slip away to a family from Ohio that wanted more sun in their lives. The remarkable tidiness of the situation was not lost on the young men. It didn't take much imagination to connect the thin velour drapes and fake flowers decorating his grandmother's house with the trappings of a funeral home. Don rented the house to local ranch hands while he completed his apprenticeship in Roswell. He returned in three years' time, the trunk of his grandmother's dodge dart filled to the brim with jugs of embalming fluid. His first job came with the Daily Mail. Percy Marsh met Don on the porch to deliver a fistful of coupons and glossy ads. It was 10 a.m., and Percy was sweating through his shirt. He swayed to and fro, swelling his tongue as if he were nursing a cut inside his cheek. My ma passed late last week, and he's a plan of funeral. Don stalled as the mailman looked at him for affirmation. Uh, I'm sorry, Percy, he managed at last. She was always really nice to me. More like begonias, said Percy. Her cat uses a nibble on them. She got a real kick out of that. I like to have begonias instead of death lilies. We can certainly do that. A wave of relief passed over Percy Marsh, and he embraced Don. His moist, starchy uniform pressed against the boy's face between quivering breaths. And I bring her by? Percy asked. This heat can't be too good for her condition. Ray Marsh was embalmed later that afternoon, in what used to be Grandmother Dupree's guest bedroom. The funeral service was held in the living room that Friday, with the Marsh family and some of Ray's oldest friends in attendance. Don set up several electric fans to keep the heat under control, and did his best to comfort the bereaved. Percy's sister Lucille remarked that her mother's makeup was surprisingly accurate. Ray still had the forged ruddiness of a desert stone. She was buried in Cedarvale, and Percy delivered a thank-you note, along with Don's final payment, in Saturday's mail. Class act, Ali. Thanks very much. Fantastic reading. Uh, let's go straight to Roz. What did you think? Yes. Oh, I did like this. Uh, great title. The blurb is, oh, what on earth is going to go on here? It's, it's an unusual setting for this for a speculative piece um not sure it's speculative fiction it could be anyway i don't think that matters too much um there's some, as you said there's that great line in the blurb after the worst <laughs> embalming of his yes. career and i really hope we see that we must see that yeah got to how got bad to. can it be i mean embalming is not good anyway um great opening paragraph a great ironic tone the dialogue i love the um the guy talking about his grandmother and saying it's heat not good for her condition and great mm. reading by the way too it was, uh, but yeah. it just sort of it shines out of the text it's 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 really working well um we know who don is um i'm intrigued to know more about don maybe i would have liked to have known a little bit more about um what he wants or what he doesn't want um know more about his life does he have any friends um i'll be about oh. to find that out i know there's only so much you can get in 700 words but but i do want to know more about him and i hope we find out some more personal deep-seated things about him before we go very much further thank you thank you andy um, yeah, I'm not quite as positive, I'm afraid. Um, like was, I really like the title. I really like the blurb. Um, the, the, the blurb has so much going on in it. There's there's a lot of fun to be had here. Unfortunately, for me, starting with the location, 
Yeah, it was it was almost, it was like too much scenery early on for me. The, you know, that kind of small town Americana where we've sort of seen it all before and then oh, yeah. when we're going into the backstory of his family history, it's like I think if you're gonna do something like that, if you look at someone like the Cohen brothers or Tim Burton, they've got super quirky stuff going on that keeps mm. you amused and hooked. Mm. And I got to the point where I wrote down you were telling us about a house he sold. And and I'd far more rather know more about the character who he is now than mm. he than his history at this point. And, and and what's going to happen to him? Yeah, when we got yeah, and embalming is 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 always it's sort of six feet under stuff. Yeah, space, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? You know, there's a lot of even even like the Carol films did a good, did a good job of embalming. I mean, there's <laughs> these fun to be had, and and at the same time, it's sort of grotesque and hideous. Um, Ooh, necrophilia. Ooh, Mrs. Ooh. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god! Actually, now I've said it, I can't actually. I'm not sure that's true. Um, but still, <laughs> I'd I'm like it to be true, one. actually. Yeah, I really would. I'm not even sure what I'm about. I probably just need a drink at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't sold on it as was is. There's some nice writing in there. I think your blurb and your title are great, but but I wasn't I wasn't that hooked. Cool, excellent. All right, let's look at the numbers you've given there, and he gets nowhere. Oh, not not bad. You like the title a lot, don't you? Mm. Yeah. Okay. And you like the blurb? Not so sure about the craft. Not sure. Not so sure about the the bang. Let's just uh, review. Oh, it reminds me a bit of six feet under, actually. Yeah, I'm there's a bit of that. Kind of. Yeah, there is a bit of uh, that. A uh, bit of Breaking Bad. Bit of I. I, I wrote down initially Cormac McCarthy on acid, because I got a <laughs> got a slight um, no country for old man vibe from it as well which is no bad thing actually it's all it's all quite commercial stuff isn't it and you love the title Roz you really d- defend defend your 100% vote there please yes and it's it's intriguing um, it could be a number of genres um, so it'll work very well no matter what he decides it is yeah. it's um, it's also used quite quite soon on in the text so we get to know what it is as well we do. which is quite good do you and think that's good or is that a problem because one or two people in the and the genius room said oh yeah you're explaining it too soon oh uh, no i i liked it it didn't i don't know that it's that there's a rule um about when you should use it but i like the fact that it was brought in and i thought okay right i kind of understand where i am yeah. here yeah um so, so I did like it, and um, presumably the pan-galactic beings or whatever they are—they're—you know—they've got bigger oh. gates to nowhere. So it'll work quite well with that too. Absolutely, yeah, fantastic. Let's look at the numbers. Seventy-eight, Simon. I thought it was going to be a big one. It's seventy-eight, and there it, you have it. You are way ahead. Um, I thought. I thought actually. <laughs> A uh, slight technical issue. We actually don't have the technical c- capacity to have two winners on one show. Um, but we uh, certainly do have the capacity to have one winner. And that would be you. Congratulations, Simon. I know you're with us live now. I hope you're feeling that, ah, that thrill of victory in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the blood and the joints. And the connective tissue. 
Everything. Yes, congratulations. Well done, Simon, indeed. Uh, we all like that. I would like you, personally, I would like you to have started a little bit harder, a little bit faster, um, a little bit more towards the Cormac McCarthy um, style. I would have liked a little bit more meaning um, out of slightly fewer words, but you know, that's a quibble. Let's um, maybe just one more pass at it. And very elegantly sad, you see, you've just, you've just done what I asked for, actually. Two words, thank you. Thank you, Simon. Delighted. And you know what has been great? Been great to have Andy. Been great to have Roz. I feel like we've been a good team today, don't you? Yeah, I think so. And we've kind of suffered as well because it's kind of it's it's pushing forty degrees outside. That's centigrade, guys. It's it's not Fahrenheit. It's Celsius. Um, it's going to be uh, a rough two days for us. But somehow, both of you. Now the cameras are off. All right, and they're not off. <laughs> Why wait? And they're, not, they're not going off until you do that. No, promises, promises. Um, but I would like to say thanks so much, Roz, for bringing your, your time and your patience and your expertise. We really do appreciate that. And, and you too, Andy. And I hope everybody has a fairly cool week. Until next Sunday. Take care. Hit it!